He's Bud Elliott. I'm Ingram Smith. This is the Nolcast. Got uh, a lot of things to get to tonight. Also try to touch on, by no means will we be able to touch on every email we've received. I would say over the past week or so, we've probably received uh, as many emails uh, as we have, particularly in response to the booster and the uh, kind of hit rate slash attrition episodes that we've done recently. So uh, a little bit of a look back, a little bit of a look forward with uh with a new commitment, some APR numbers to talk about, and uh, just a kind of a, a full plate to get to, bud. So, as always, want to thank Louisiana Hot Sauce before we get too involved in uh, this particular podcast. Uh, Louisiana has been a sponsor with us since day one. Couldn't ask for uh, a better partner with us. Uh, couldn't ask for a better kind of on-brand sponsorship of two guys who uh, who love to cook and are very fortunate to be able to brag about a product uh, that is uh, fantastic and, and has been a, a great addition to our uh, humble podcast here. So as always, uh, a tip of the hat to the boys in New Iberia, Louisiana, and Bud will uh, we'll jump right into this uh, most recent episode of the Nolcast. Let's do it, man. And uh, Florida State stays hot on the recruiting trail with uh, top 200 player, four-star receiver Malachi Weidman. Big time receiver commit out of the Sarasota area, Ingram, and uh, one that I'm I'm pretty excited about, and one who I know we've discussed before on this very show. We have. We have. In fact, uh, if we've discussed the prospect, and maybe even more importantly at the time, we've discussed the prospect's parent. So uh, kudos to you for, one, giving a, a good breakdown as to what the kid's ability was a couple months ago, but also uh, discussing the very positive sign that was uh, – when when uh, the prospect didn't necessarily make it to campus, but his mother did. Uh, that's always a, a great sign of a very serious interest. And uh, good for Florida State to go ahead and uh, lock up a kid who is fantastically talented, uh, very talented basketball player, as I'm sure most of you have uh, – have either previously known or become familiar with over the past week or so, uh, explosive athlete to say the least, and uh, a guy who has I don't know if all the upside in the world is the right phrase, but just a ton of ton of physical gifts and a, a guy that you think once you get in the system two or three years down the line can be a, a very real contributor and perhaps a difference maker for you. Yeah, so uh, good size at the receiver position. Uh, I think that the, the speed is. Uh, good for his size. Maybe not the elite track speed, but I, I, I'll admit I've not seen him run a 40, so I, I, I guess I'll I'll wait on that. And he does run away from some people on his highlight tape. Uh, change of direction for his size is is pretty good. Uh, I would say uh, the raw factor as far as how polished he is at playing receiver, not very high at this point uh, because, I mean, let's face it, basketball has been uh, at least uh, an equal – uh, priority for him, if not uh, if not a, a, a greater one. But what really what really stands out about Wyman is his ability to go up and get the football. When you watch the kid play basketball and he's doing like three sixty tomahawk dunks as a guard, you, you're kind of like, oh well, yeah, that that does seem to make a lot of sense. the The ability to leap into the air really high and have body control while in the air to catch football is a big deal. Uh, he's a very competitive kid. Uh, I think he has upside somewhat similar to that of, of Jordan Young, who I was very high on two years ago. Uh, now, not a person or not a player that I would project to make an instant impact at this stage in his career. Maybe after reevaluating what he'll do as a senior, maybe I'll change my mind on that. But I, I think that, that his uh, his ranking is mostly reflective of his physical ability and the potential upside 
that comes with him as a prospect. There's a pretty wide range of potential variants, but you still have to be very excited. This is a, a kid who I think if you're a Florida State fan, I would be very happy they got him. Not a kid that I think you want to take just to fill up the class. He's a kid that, that uh, you should be excited that you got regardless of when you got him. And, and now uh, he can you know sort of put the recruiting stuff aside and fully focus on his academics so he can come in and be ready to play not only in football, but also uh, going to play on the basketball team. I saw assistant coach Dennis Gates was tweeting some stuff and uh, how happy he was <laughs> at Taggart's Ring Ring tweet uh, you know, that Willie sent out like he does on Twitter. And uh, Dennis should be happy because that's a kid who gets to play on the basketball team at Florida State who does not take up scholarship because under NCAA rule, your scholarship counts towards the sport or rather against the sport uh, that has the most scholarship. So in this case, football, 85, more than basketball. Uh, what, what does basketball have, 12, 11? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. It's, a, it's the old tip of the hat to Bear Bryant who loved to fill up the track scholarships with football players. But uh, And Nebraska with a swimming team of, and, and, and you know some guys who maybe, if they could swim, they certainly were not competitive <laughs> swimmers. <laughs> The old uh, 5'11", 265 fullback is not not exactly a a threat in the 100-meter sprint or the 100-meter free, I'm sure. Just a continual trend here. Uh, Class is uh, ranked as high as number five right now. I don't know that we necessarily want to uh, concern ourselves with rankings. And and Florida State will probably come back to the pack a little bit with some of these higher echelon players start to make their decision throughout the course of the summer. But great job by the staff so far of identifying kids uh, that they think they can go ahead and uh, have legitimate possibilities of signing. Uh, They've done, as we've mentioned many times, whether it be Herring or most notably quarterback prospect, uh, they've just done a great job of getting kids on board who are not only interested in going to Florida, Florida State, but interested in getting other kids to go to Florida State. It's a, a very nice nucleus of a class that's been built, and uh, Weidman is, is yet another uh, really solid addition to it. Exactly right. Uh, so they're, yeah, they're currently, what do you say, fifth in the nation. I, I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to team rank at this point in the year because in my head I'm kind of like, all right, well, I know they got this kid coming or that kid coming for you know, this school or that school. Uh, but they have 12 commitments, and their average ranking right now is over a 90, which means it's over uh, slightly over a four-star average, which is pretty solid. Not really qu- uh, quite what Clemson is doing with an average of 96. Uh, so, you know, that's a little tough. But they are ahead uh, of the Gators ever so slightly with uh, 12 commits uh, compared to 10 commits. And uh, Miami just ahead of them with 14 compared to FSU's 12. Um, so really, Miami, Florida State, Florida are all all just about even right now in recruiting. If you were to look at the points, there, there's not a tremendous difference there in terms of, of who they have in their classes so far. Uh, Florida State, eight, four, and five stars against four, two, and three stars. And uh, I think we've discussed on a previous episode, uh, some of their two and three stars might deserve to be rated uh, as four stars, and some of their four stars might deserve to be more two slash three stars. So. You never know, and, and there's some other kids they look they look pretty good for as well that we might discuss later on the show. But th- this is a good start. Uh, I think that the the solidness in terms of how committed are they to this class is pretty high for for most of these kids, and that's a good thing. Um, I think it's important to sort of rebuild that floor after last year's five and seven season, and that, that's what they're doing. They're trying to make sure they have a, a solidly committed group that uh, will likely stick with them if they were to go like. You know, eight and four, seven and five, which I think is probably the expectation. But 
not a record that would impress anybody. That, that, that is a question we got, by the way. I guess we could bring it up now, but somebody asked, hey, if Florida State's able to win seven or eight games this year, or even nine, did, what do you think that would do for recruiting? To me, and, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, I, I think that would just be seen as holding serve. And and I don't believe they would have a bump if they go seven and five, eight and four, nine and three. If you turn around and go you know, 10 and two, perhaps uh, win your bowl game, although now bowl game bump doesn't really apply as much because of the early signing period, that could potentially help. But I think most of the uh, most likely records – would, would not be a record that would really help them all that much on a recruiting trail. Yeah, uh, I'm in agreement. I mean, the, the record that uh, is going to impact recruiting is is either an outlier or not an outlier, but a, a, a statistical probability to the real high uh, that's probably not going to be there, whether it be an 11-win season or above, or um, on the downside, if we're sitting here talking about uh, a team that's struggling for a, a, to be bowl eligible with a final uh, two games of the season or something like that or the final game of the season so um, I don't know that uh, that the play on the field is going to have a huge impact on this class uh, for multiple reasons one of which is the level of, of uh, play that these current commits saw last year uh, it's not exactly like I think they're going to be scared away if Florida State goes out and lose four games this year uh, but also uh, the fact that they have done such a good job of getting so many kids uh, in the class and kind of building a bond uh, togetherness, whatever you want to refer to it as, uh, with the kids that they do have committed. So, um, you know, sometimes those things can face a little bit of strain over time, and uh, they're never perfect, but you'd much rather have a cohesive unit uh, heading into summer and uh, a bunch of guys who appear to want to be around each other and want to play with each other. So Florida State's done a really solid job of uh, building the uh, building the 2020 class and uh, credit to the coaching staff who have uh, done a really good job of putting a really disappointing year uh, in the rear view and uh, moving on to try to get kids to make sure something like that doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Uh, so it, it's very peak off season right now. We're done with spring games and we are a long way from the season started, which means it is time for – uh, coach ranking list to come out. Have you seen any of these recently? Yeah, I saw uh, I saw one a couple of days ago from uh, I believe it was from the Post and Courier out of Charleston or something like that. And uh, coming from two guys who have uh, operated websites <laughs> before, I think we're very much doing uh, kind of what the the stated goal of such a article is, and that is to uh, obviously to have like you know ranking. Ranking Dabo Sweeney number one or something like that isn't necessarily a play, but when you when you put Florida State's head coach at the bottom of the list, uh, that's going to draw more attention than, say, if you had Wake Forest uh, coach there or Vanderbilt or something like that. Not something we're going to devote uh, 15 minutes to breaking down, but uh, it did want to touch on this and point out uh, some of its flaws and, and – uh, while at the same time not not dismissing uh, the season that was that uh, that had your head coach ranked 28 out of 28 coaches uh, out of the ACC and SEC. I, I really only have two problems with this. Number one, I, I do kind of think it's silly to rank people who have never been head coaches ahead of people who have. Maybe I would just say number 20. That was an interesting ranking. Yeah, and it's just hard to justify thumbs up or thumbs down because you don't know how somebody's going to be as a head coach. In fact, uh, people first-time head coaches oftentimes struggle a ton because there is so much that they still 
have to learn. It's, you know, Jimbo is very much an outlier there. Most of the coordinators you hire are going to struggle more than the previous head coaches you hire. That, that's, that study's been done. I've talked to people who, who work for athletic departments who know that. You know, putting Taggart at, at dead last was obviously something to be done for clicks. I think that if you put him dead last among only the returning coaches in the ACC-SEC, it would have probably had less shock effect somewhat, I think, and you'd probably got less clicks from FSU fans. It wouldn't have been maybe as inaccurate as as what they did, but it also reflects something that I, I see in a lot, of the, a lot of these rankings. And it's not just the Post and Courier one, which, hey, kudos to that newspaper. It did a good job, and we said their name twice now on the show. But if you were to boil this down to a formula that a lot of these places use, it would basically read like this. 90% last year, uh, mixed in with 10% that is just the entire rest of their career prior to last year. To me, that is inappropriate weighting, I would say, and too much recency bias in these things. No, like people can say whatever they want. They can put guys wherever they want. Willie doesn't deserve to be ranked very high right now because the last season is the most important season, for sure, uh, and he did not do a good job. Some stuff was out of his control, certainly, but still, I, I very much doubt they had him ranked anywhere close to the bottom going into last year, and and I don't think it's appropriate to have one season totally change your opinion on a coach when he has a, a track record that is seven or eight times longer than one season as a head coach. Uh, so I, I just think these things are, are far too reactionary year to year, and thus it hurts their credibility a little bit, to be honest. I think that's probably probably all that needs to be said on the on the ranking list. Uh, something that, like you said, will ebb and flow and be uh, almost entirely dictated by whatever the previous year's uh, record was. And hey, look, when you've got a chance to uh, to put a Florida State or an Auburn or you know one of these large fan bases, and you have a chance to put them last, it uh, plays well. And like I said at the beginning, certainly garners more attention than. Uh, you know, slapping slapping Wake Forest or Vanderbilt or something like that uh, down with uh, with with such a ranking. So uh, with that, Bud, we'll transition to uh, an article that I saw you wrote recently and uh, wanted to touch on tonight. I thought it was uh, pretty interesting and um, an article that's kind of right up your alley in uh, being able to provide both kind of a statistical breakdown and then maybe. Uh, a little bit more of a, a reasoning as to uh, why some of these outliers occur and how kids that weren't four or five star prospects who uh, ultimately worked themselves into the first round. So uh, with that, I'll kind of hand it over to you and let you recap the uh, article and, and what you found. Yeah, so I, I exactly. It gets kind of boring writing how awesome four and five star recruits are. Uh we know that they make up only about 10% of all D1 recruits on a year-to-year basis, and uh, yet they are 10 times more likely, four and five stars are, to be drafted in the first round than two and three stars. So the guys in the top 10% are 10 times more likely to be, to be first-rounders than everybody else. All right, got it? Cool. I was, was kind of like, I don't want to write this article again this year, even though it's right, and there's a number of national media every year who still don't seem to get it, and they're like, oh, look at all these sleepers who made it. This is awesome, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I, I wanted to write about the, the sleepers for, for once. And, and let, me, let me write about the underdogs. And, and so I, I took and I, I dug something up that I had originally worked on in 2014. And it was essentially 
looking at the reasons why why the guys in the first round who were not four and five stars were rated as as two and three stars. So uh, I came up with a bunch of different factors. Um, first, maybe they're going to junior college. We know JUCO guys are less likely to succeed overall, especially out of high school, so they're going to be rated lower. A lot of times they fail out. They don't have the proper sport, whatever. Maybe they played a sport other than football as their primary sport, which can help, you know, or excuse me, can hurt your ability to get seen. Uh, it can also hurt your development a little bit, potentially, although I do think multi-sport guys are more of a positive than a negative. Maybe they're new to the sport or the position from a forward country, attended multiple high schools, which you have issues of sort of chain of custody for recruiting film and doesn't always get cut up and distributed. Perhaps the person or the player had an injury, which limited his exposure or development. Perhaps he changed positions in college uh, or underwent a major physical outlier change. Uh, this is a, a real big one that I'm going to talk about in a second. But uh, we saw a lot of these guys going from you know 215 to 250, from 245 to, to 285, 265 to 305. And, and I got to tell you, like that's that is, and, and if you keep your speed and your athleticism at that, that's a huge, huge difference. That's a vastly different player than who, who you were recruiting. And it's easy to say, oh well, you know, weight programs pack on stuff like that all the time. No, they don't. Not to that extent. That that extra extra couple percentage points of gain really do make a, a big time difference. And oftentimes that accompanies a position change as well. Most of those guys who you get who are 265, they're going to struggle to get the 300. It might be that 290 range, but but guys in that 290 range on the offensive line, they don't go in the first round. They need to get you up to 300 eventually. Maybe you're from a remote location. Maybe you played for a tiny high school. Those two kind of go hand in hand. Or perhaps you were, you were significantly younger than grade level. You know, and I basically just define that as you didn't turn you didn't turn 18 until after your senior season. What I found here, there were 15 guys who were uh, two and three stars or unrated who went in the first round. Ingram, nine of them, nine of the 15 fell into the category of major, major physical change outlier. So guys who put on a ton of weight. For instance, uh, Titus Howard, 322 pounds now. High school, he was 222. He was a quarterback. Not rated as a quarterback because he probably wasn't any good as a quarterback. That's why he went to Alabama State. Uh, he also grew two inches in college. So put on 100 pounds, <laughs> grew two inches. He's from Monroeville, Alabama, which is a town of less than 7,000 people. And his high school had never before produced a recruit with the star ring. This list is, is just littered with guys like this. Marquise Brown, Hollywood Brown, went to the Ravens. He was only 130 pounds in high school. That's incredibly tiny. He also went Juco. L.J. Collier, the TCU kid, went from 227 to 283. Several of your offensive linemen went from 240 to 315-ish. The, the Washington State kid, the NC State kid, and then I think the Boston College guy went from 260 to like 315. Just huge, huge changes here uh, in these guys. So that was, that was one thing. And then the other thing was uh, it's pretty clear to me as a recruiting guy that Sometimes guys from real small schools or real small towns get overlooked. And that's either because they weren't seen or because there's legitimate reason in most of these cases to question their level of competition on a highlight film. And perhaps they didn't go to a camp and show that they belonged against a higher level of athlete and a higher level of competition. Those, those were the, the two categories that stood out really above and beyond everything else. So my question is, how, how do you exploit this? Well, I, I don't know that you can fully. 
it's great to say, okay, so take smaller linemen, take smaller players, and put weight on them. Unfortunately, it it just doesn't uh, it doesn't really translate in that way because for every kid who I'm able to profile and say, okay, this guy went from 240 to 315, there's probably 20 of those guys selling insurance asking us if they can advertise on the Nolcast who, who maxed out at 280, <laughs> right? We, yes. we, we don't talk about about the, these dudes who go pro and something other than sports, but but this is an outlier to put on this kind of weight. Do you remember the uh, Do you remember the defensive end Patrick Kearney from UVA? I do. He basically checks off everything you just listed. Uh, I'm just sitting there listening to it in my mind. He was a lacrosse player. He went to a uh, stuffy little prep school in New England that was more likely to. Uh, not not exactly a football factory. Uh, I think he was 195 pounds his senior year. Uh, by his end of his sophomore year at Virginia, he was 245. Um, ended up being a first-round pick of the Falcons at defensive end. I just sat there listening to you and remembered Kearney. And he also played a very uh, pivotal role in Florida State's history as he was the guy that uh, fractured Chris Winkie's neck uh, prior to at the end of the year. Uh, that had us play Marcus Outson in the 98 98, Florida game and uh, had us, unfortunately, also play Marcus Outson in the national championship game. Uh, But it's an interesting uh, interesting blend of situations that you talked about, and that was just one individual who, while you sat there and talked, uh, kind of uh, just checked off every every box that you listed there. Oh, Jaguars fans. Josh Allen, here we go. I know we have some Jaguars fans on the show. Apparently I don't say the word Jaguars right either, so – Went from 210 to 262, so 52 pounds. That's 20-something percent gain, uh, yet retained his quickness. He uh, played most of his high school career in Alabama at a very small uh, school, a very small town. Town fewer than 3,000 residents, by the way, in Bama. Was basketball was his primary sport for a lot of his career. Did not play any defense when he was in high school in Alabama. Was a decent receiver recruit. Then moved back to New Jersey where his mom lived because they had, had sent him away because New Jersey was trying to put him in um, like learning disabled type classes. And the mom was convinced that he didn't need that. And uh, and she was right. Ultimately, he, he did well in, or well enough in school in regular classes and uh, moved back to Jersey and moves to defensive end. So you get this kid that you know your area scouts in Jersey are not going to be familiar with at all who comes in and like the last half of his senior year, he plays defense and plays really well. And the only reason Kentucky saw him is because a guy on Kentucky's staff, I found out, his brother was a high school coach in New Jersey. And Josh Allen wrecked wrecked his team because <laughs> uh, they played against him. And he called his brother and said, hey, I've never heard of this kid. I Googled him. He's got no offers. You guys need to take a look at this guy. And uh, and so that that's how recruiting works sometimes. But it's just so easy to see how this guy would fall through the cracks, right? Tiny town, tiny school. Multiple different high schools, football not his primary position, massive weight gain in college, yet retaining his quickness, uh, totally transforming his profile as a player. I mean, these things happen. To me, there were only really three kids, and we don't need to really get into this because it's going to run along, but there were really only three guys that I would say were, were actual misses uh, and, and kids who were, were not going to be uh, – or who I, I, I thought that probably should have been higher rated just based on, on the information I could find. 
All right, bud. Good little look at uh, some of the outliers there and how uh, kids that maybe were ranked two or three stars or maybe weren't ranked at all ended up making their way into the first round. Uh, Go ahead and take some time to talk about a sure first-round pick in our opinion, and that is uh, the good people at Madison Social for the Table Restaurant Group. A little bit of announcement to make uh, from ourselves and also uh, pair with what they're doing with uh, with the – game in Jacksonville, Boise State. Matt and his team have secured what is uh, almost certainly the the preferred tailgating location uh, when you're when you're attending a game in Jacksonville in late August. It is I think 27,000 square feet of uh, air conditioned space uh, very close to the stadium there. Um, if anybody was fortunate enough to go to their old miss uh, tailgate, you know that that was uh, far and away the best place to be. And uh, attention to detail is something that they uh, very strong in and provide a, as good of an experience as possible. Uh, as far as our end of this, I think we will uh, – it's something we've talked about for a while, but we will have some type of live podcast there. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Uh, Bud and I are trying to sketch that out in its entirety. Uh, but something that we would like you to put on your calendar if you're going to go to the Boise State game. Uh, no better partner for us as a podcast with uh, For the Table Restaurant Group and uh, no better place to be as far as a tailgate than uh, than what they'll be doing in August in Jacksonville. Yo, it's going to be a blast. Here's the deal. It, even if you don't want to come see us, it's air-conditioned. The game is going to be really hot. Don't make your tailgating experience super hot anyway. We're talking late August in Jacksonville. It's going to be really hot. Indoors, not going to be that. I mean, it's going to, be, going to be hot in a good way, but not hot in terms of sweating hot, which is great. And they might do a drink around the world thing as well in there. Uh, maybe a thing where, where ticket buyers get to submit some questions for us for our live show. We're still working that all out. And uh, not not sure if, if that will be a show that will actually be released on the feed either. It might just be an in-person uh, live tell exclusive. You, yeah, I can almost promise you it won't be. Um, so, FSU Jacks, J A X, tailgate.com. Again, FSU Jacks, tailgate.com. I think the uh, first 200 people will also get uh, what Madison Social is now legally having to refer to as beer sweaters, since evidently koozies will, uh, will get you a cease and desist order if you put that out on the internet too much. Didn't know that. But, uh, yeah, so uh, FSUJacksTailgate.com, something we're really looking forward to uh, continuing our relationship with Madison Social and hope to be able to interact with any of you, the listeners there, uh, come late August. But do the people listen to podcasts? I'm still want to call them a koozie. I think we're in the clear. I would, uh, I'd love to see somebody hit us with a and d based off a verbal description of a neoprene beer holder. So. Maybe we'll have to uh, to come up with fun fun names uh, to describe those in the future. Go to the tailgate. It's going to be awesome. Uh, not so awesome, but also not a surprise if you've been a listener of the show, is Florida State's APR score. It's the lowest in D1 football. <sighs> well, yeah. <laughs> you know, if we knew that the kids weren't going to class in for parts of 2016 – and you know that it's going to be a four-year rolling average, which is how the thing is calculated. And you know what a, what an absolute uh, you know, blank show this was under Jimbo Fisher um, in 2017. Well, when you know that when you factor in that 2017-2018 academic year, which, again, is the majority of it was, was Fisher's staff, 
it's going to be bad, and it was. Not bad enough that they're going to get any kind of penalties. Not bad enough they're going to miss any kind of bowl games or anything. But uh, we've told you a good bit, I think, for – I don't even know if we could count the number of episodes that I've said the word APR in con- combination with one of Willie's major challenges was to get kids to actually go to class. Uh, hey, they're, they're having trouble running off some kids who are troublemakers slash not good people because of the fact they actually need these guys to stay on and – matriculate and show academic progress and graduate and all this other stuff. I think there'd be guys who would be kicked off if, if not for that. Any number of kind of things that we've said, you know, we also told you that uh, when Willie's staff got here, they were really shocked that, that kids just didn't go to class. <laughs> they were like, oh, these, man, these, dude, these dudes just weren't going to class, you know? And that's been something they've worked to fix. Uh, I guess next year's numbers will begin to show if they have fixed it or not, but Look, if you're a listener of this show, I don't think this is a surprise to you. So we're not going to spend that much time on it. I think the APR is a pretty dumb measure, if we're just being honest, not Florida State specific. But it doesn't really measure the quality of academics. It doesn't really measure the quality of education or, or even if the kids are getting an education. But uh, it does measure whether your kids are are passing and matriculating through whatever classes uh, sham or not. Uh, that that you're putting them in, and Florida State's kids uh, were not doing that, so it really sucks that they're not getting paid, and they're also not uh, they were not taking full advantage of the of the education they were given. We had a couple of former players tweeted us that you'd be shocked at just how few kids went to class. Which, I mean, maybe the average person would be. I really wouldn't be because I was hearing that and telling it to y'all. But yeah, the APR man, not uh, not a great number for their academic progress rate. Uh, worst in D one. <laughs> Yeah, worse in D one. Um, it, it and again, we're not going to try to get too far into the details here. But Florida State is at nine thirty six overall after posting a senior, or, excuse me, a single year APR of nine twenty two. Uh, the number of which to really focus on here is nine thirty. If Florida State were to fall below that, then all of the things that Bud just mentioned uh, aren't in play. Would be in play as far as. Uh, not being able to be eligible in uh, in certain uh, championship scenarios or looking at a loss of scholarship. So I know that uh, Florida State had a, a pretty nice little uptick uh, with Taggart's initial uh, coming in and some of the uh, academic uh, success that was stated there. Um, I saw where Taggart tonight, I think, was down in your old neck of the woods in uh, Fort Myers, bud, and had some pretty positive things to say about the most recent grades that I think he said he received either yesterday or the day before. Uh, to quote him, he said, we had 29 kids get their personal best uh, this semester, and we had 24 kids with over a 3.0 uh, or better. And according to Taggart, uh, the overall uh, macro view of the academics is one that continues uh, to trend upward, and we'll have to see what type of impact uh, that has on Florida State's APR. But this is uh, something we've discussed, something that we talked about, uh, the inability to immediately change the culture because you can't just come in and run a bunch of kids off because of the APR. Uh, and it's something that hopefully this is kind of the uh, the bottom point and uh, we'll, we'll start to tick upward here. But it's... Uh, you know, going to be a concern, and it's certainly indicative of the program that Taggart uh, inherited. And I say that uh, by no means trying to uh, absolve him of any responsibility uh, or all responsibility of what happened last year. But uh, again, it's something to have in the back of your mind 
as to exactly what it was that he walked into. Yeah, look, he, he definitely walked into a bit of a clown show. Um, you're right, it doesn't absolve him. As it goes forward, next year's APR will be 25% on Willie and 75% on Jimbo. The APR of the year after that will be 50% on Willie and 50 on Jimbo. So this is not going to be a number that he has majority ownership in until about three years from now because it is a – it's a, a, a not forward-looking, but rear-looking, backwards-looking number, which is a four-year average. So, obviously, you can only gain about 25% ownership each year. I do think that the guys who bought in to Willie were going to class. I'm not entirely sure that their numbers are going to be like amazingly, drastically better. I work, you know, Show it to me. They definitely had some kids who didn't buy in, and some of those kids are, are no longer here, which is kind of – even worse, considering that they were, you know, their thought was, "Hey, we can't boot some of these dudes because, you know, we need to, <laughs> we need to see if we can save them, honestly, and also help out the APR so we don't get like a bowl ban." Um, it, it is pretty inexcusable for a school like Florida State to be that low, and and it is very much indicative of somebody who was uh, uh, somebody who was asleep at the wheel and not really caring anymore, uh, and wasn't making sure that his assistant coaches were were handling their business uh, in that regard uh, either. So. Hopefully things are, are trending. Uh, I, I'm pretty confident they are trending in a good direction. Maybe they're trending in a really good direction. Nobody really cares about the APR as long as you're not like in the bottom ten, you know, in, in that range, right? Like they'll be negatively recruited over this. They already were like each of the last three years, ever since it just started to go completely in in the tank. Uh, it'll take a little while to to not be negatively recruited by this or over this because it's. It, this is such a slow-moving number because it, it's a four-year average. I did love that uh, the Jimbo got broke off for 150k for uh, for the academic progress of Texas A&M, though. Yeah, that's good for him. I mean, it doesn't shock me at all. The contract is is right up there with Paul Hewitt's contract with Georgia Tech. Well, no, nothing will top Paul Hewitt's, but it was it was a very uh, friendly written contract from Jimbo Fisher's perspective. I'll put it that way. You know, maybe he'll be able to buy a couple more eighty thousand dollar cows or something like that. So, do you th- do you him. think uh, let's do a little quiz here? So th- this latest APR for A and M, who was the A and M coach in the summer of 2017? Uh, that would be uh, Coach Sumlin, I believe. Mm. And in fall of 2017, I don't think that was Jimbo Fisher either. Mm. Okay, so then uh, uh, spring of, of 2018, that that was Jimbo's uh, first semester there. So he's responsible for about 10 percent of that number. Just as Willie is responsible for about ten percent of, of this number, as I understand it, one hundred fifty G's for that—that's uh, that's pretty solid. Good work if you can get it. Yeah, exactly. If you can get uh, it, hats off to you. Speaking of guys who may not be going to class, uh, Florida top-rated signee—not Florida State, but Florida—Chris uh, Steele uh, has elected to enter the transfer portal, and the Gainesville Sun uh, reported that uh, he was roommates with uh, the quarterback Jones, who was accused of but not charges pressure. I, 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 the, the two uh, victims did not want to go forward with it. Uh, he was roommates with uh, the quarterback recruit who was on campus, Jones, uh, and he had asked for a roommate transfer uh, early, early on in the semester. And uh, according to the Gainesville Sun, Florida was not going to do that until the summer. Well, subsequently, the uh, thing between Jones, the incidents, I guess, between Jones and these two women went down and uh, – I guess the story is that was the last straw for uh, Florida's top-rated uh, signee who's from California. and Who knows if he's homesick or whatever. 
Maybe he just doesn't want to live with a guy like that, which I can't, I can't blame him, you know? So he is elected to, uh, to transfer out today. Uh, last week, they um, Brian Edwards, one of their DBs, picked up a domestic battery charge um, for uh, choking his girlfriend. And they had their top-rated 2021 uh, recruit decommit today. So not a great 24 hours in Gainesville. No, wasn't wasn't so great to be a Florida Gator. Oh, the the quarterback, uh, by the way, uh, he he uh, transferred out slash. I'm guessing was booted. It's tough, man. I mean, going to California and getting big time recruits is a uh, is a nice thing. Certainly feels great uh, on signing day, but it's uh, and look, this is just one example. I'm not saying that this happens all the time, but. It's tough to get those kids to pan out for whatever reason. And, uh, and I don't know that Steele's uh, leaving Florida is necessarily indicative of, uh, of him growing up in California or anything like that. But just historically, sure, there's some outliers that stand out in your mind uh, for Florida State and Miami. Uh, Miami's done or did particularly well with, uh, with California kids for a short window of time right around the turn of the century. But hard to get those to fully play out and live up to their recruiting ranking more times than not. It, it is. There's just so many factors you have to overcome. The, the cultural change uh, for California kids coming to Florida is is really pretty intense. I can tell you, being around kids from different areas, football players in Florida act a lot differently than football players in California. There's a lot more smack talk. There's a lot less like building up of each other, and they're like it's a lot more individualism, uh, a lot more cutthroat. I would say in in Florida than it is in, in California. And I'm sure that, that uh, culturally some of those guys off the field have, have a little trouble fitting in as well. But uh, anyway, I, I, uh, I kind of laughed that uh, Mike Bianchi had said some interesting things on Paul Feinbaum's show, and I pointed out that uh, the Gators have – or excuse me, uh, Georgia has signed 15, 15 five-stars in the last three years. The rest of the East combined, four. Again, Georgia – 15 five-stars last three years. The rest of the East combined, four. Now, how does that compare to, say, Alabama's top three-year run against the West? Well, Georgia, like I just said, was a plus 11, 15 to four over three years. That was their best. Bama's best over th- over a three-year span against the West, negative six. Hmm. Bama had wow. 18. The rest of the West had 24. So it is absolutely accurate to say that Georgia – is pasting the East in recruiting in a way that Bama never did to the West. They are running away with this thing hugely over a three-year span in, in a way that not only is it pretty rare for to happen in the SEC, it's really pretty rare to happen in any division in, in college football. I, I'm kind of hard-pressed to think of one that has happened like that. USC against, against the Pac-12 South if the Pac-12 South had existed a couple of years earlier, would have really probably been the one. Yeah, and then the other one that immediately comes to mind, I don't know the exact numbers you may be able to provide, but uh, there's certainly a feeling as to what Clemson is doing to the rest of the conference right now uh, in recruiting and what that you know what the ramifications that are ultimately going to be. Uh, we've gone out of our way the past couple of weeks to talk about the type of class that Clemson's building and uh, – Nothing in the ACC is going to be even uh, remotely reflective of the talent hall that uh, that Clemson brings in this year and hasn't really been that close uh, over the past couple of years. No, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, so Clemson had five in 2018, five stars that is, 
uh, one in 2019, and they'll probably have like six, seven or eight, seven or eight. I okay. think. Um, yeah. So let's just go it's with. A, it's a sad state when six is <laughs> six yeah. is a is an optimistic number as to what Clemson might ultimately bring in when it comes to five star prospects. Right. It, it would basically mean Clemson size, signs one at one at every every five five stars this, this cycle. I think it's seven, which is possible. Uh, so that would give them thirteen over a uh, over a three year span. I think just off the bat, the thing is that that Florida State is the only school in the East, right? That signs, or excuse me, not the East, the Atlantic, that signs five-star kids at all, you know? Um, now, last year, Florida State did not finish with with any. Uh, they had a couple who were, were right up close there. So they're going to be pretty close there, actually. Clemson will if they, if they, if they finish this out. Because FSU in 2018 uh, didn't get any either because uh, Jaden finished as a, uh, as a four-star kid. So that's going to be interesting to watch there uh, for sure. And we've seen a lot of smack talk on how Clemson's going to own the division for a while. And, yeah, they probably will, to be honest. But the same thing is kind of – and the smack talk from Gator fans, specifically not from Clemson fans, who seem to have bigger fish to fry than, at this point than Florida State. Florida fans are talking a lot of smack about Clemson. And I'm kind of sitting here thinking, y'all realize, like, Georgia is just as committed to getting kids and they're – smoking Florida on the recruiting trail as much or more than, than Clemson is to uh, Florida State. I mean, they're both getting smoked. There's no doubt about it. But that's kind of the whole state of Florida thing right now. A lot of, a lot of smack talk in general <laughs> uh, coming out of Gainesville, whether it be fans or their head coach or anything else. And uh, uh, not that many people who listen to this podcast will have a ton of sympathy for Florida under any situations, but uh, certainly not with uh, – with the way that uh, some things have been handled and cute little spring game attendance numbers or whatever else. Uh, Florida got a little bit of issues to deal with and their own house in order uh, before they start taking verbal pop shots at the uh, schools that uh, surround them and uh, some of their traditional rivals. So the interesting thing here, right, to me, is that Mullen loves to smack talk his rivals. And when he was and really loves to just kind of kind of dig at people, and he's very good at it. If, if Dan Mullen beats you, you're going to hear about it for an entire year. And and he's, like I said, he's very good at it. At, at Mississippi State, that meant kind of tweaking Ole Miss, and occasionally LSU if they beat them. I, I don't remember him smack-talking smack Bama. And I'm not saying that Georgia's Bama. I think the gap between Georgia and Florida is smaller than the gap that existed between Mississippi State and Bama. Did I say that right? The gap between Georgia and Florida is smaller than the Mississippi State-Bama gap during the Mullen years. But it's still a pretty good-sized gap. Did you know that Georgia has won every division game by two or more scores in the last two years? I did not know that. Nobody has played them to a single score. I did not know that. I mean, that's that's not competitive. It's reflective of what they've done. I mean, they've, they've put a lot of room out in front of themselves. And uh, we've spoken a long time about the uh, Georgia-Florida rivalry and the kind of expectation uh, that Gator fans have as to how that game ends up more times than not. 
And that's going to be a painful recalibration of expectations as far as that uh, the game in Jacksonville every year. That's that's not going to go the way we've said something like this if we haven't said it verbatim. If you're a 37 year old attorney and a bull gator, uh, the the memories and what you have associated with that game as far as uh, how you think it's going to play out six, seven times a decade uh, in your favor. That's going to be a tough pill to swallow uh, over the next couple of years, what happens uh, when you go up for that game and, and the, the fallout and how that particular fan base deals with it. Indeed. It's, it's been a while. All right, man. I also want to let you know about Resolution Home Loans. When you call 844-FSU-LOAN or visit FSUHomeLoans.com, you'll get hooked up with Shannon Young. Shannon is the best in the business. That's why I went with my mortgage through him. Great rates. They'll walk through the process. He'll keep you just as informed as you need to be if it's your first time. He might call you every day if you want him to. If not, he'll call you when you want him to. That's just the way he works. Really knowledgeable. Has been in the business a long time. Excellent loan guy. He's the one you want to go with. He's at all our, all our events as well. Big time member of the Nolcast community. We very much thank them. Resolution, uh, Shannon and Chad, for their support. 844-FSU-LOAN or FSUHomeLoans.com. All right, bud. Uh, we'll transition to a couple other things before we uh, depart. Pretty good question here about kind of when stars start to matter uh, or recruiting rankings start to matter. We hear all the time about how people will say stars slash player makings don't matter this early. Um, in your opinion, when when does that start to be a more legitimate representation as to the class and, and talent level uh, that ultimately may be headed to a particular university? The, the way I, I tend to think of it is that these two things go hand in hand, the the, the rankings of the players and then ultimately the, the schools that get those players. As a general rule, right, the, the five stars – are going to be rated the earliest because they're going to stick out. They're the ones that are the most obvious. It's it's pretty, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's easier to pick out a five-star. I could take almost anybody who watches football. You don't have to be a scout out there. And I bet you that if I had 100 players on the field and, and I knew that you know a certain number of them were five-stars, they, they could probably pick out most of the five-star players, I, I would think. Not necessarily all of them, but, but most of them. Then you're four-stars. You have about 300 or so of those, sometimes 400 of them. That, that is a little bit trickier, and those kids still stand out a, a pretty good bit, right? You got your – if there's 400 four-stars, maybe your top 20 are kids who are borderline four or five, and, and there's some rankings, adjustments, things we figured out there. And maybe your top, like, 60 are – or excuse me, maybe your bottom 60 are, are perhaps kids who are borderline three-slash-four-stars. So where are we in the evaluation period? Uh, not the like the NCAA evaluation period, but just in terms of the timeline of evaluations. Well, most of like the shoe company camps are, are, are mostly all done. There's a couple Under Armour events left, I think, and maybe Nike has one more. They have the opening over summer, but I don't really, uh, I don't pay as much attention to that anymore simply because I feel like like there's a little more hype there than actual. Uh, opportunities for evaluation, and I know other networks at times feel the same. Uh, so we've gotten to see a lot of these kids at, at these camps, and we've been able to see them in one-on-one settings. We've been able to see them do some athletic testing, and that's been big. Uh, now, what's still to come, right? We still have their senior season, which uh, for at least some kids does impact your ranking. And if you have a, a, a senior season that is a bit of an outlier uh, or a senior season that's sort of uh, supports your junior year breakout, 
then, then that can be a, a thing that we should, can really increase your ranking. If you get hurt or if you turn in a bad senior season, you maybe show up sloppy or overweight or something like that, that could negatively impact your ranking. Uh, and, and kids are, are naturally going to drop a little bit for the most part because you're going to have some some really fast risers who go from maybe the, the 1300s or the 1800s in terms of the overall ranking up into maybe like the top 200 or top 300. That's going to bump everybody else down one spot for each time that happens. Because you still have the school camps left to go this summer, those are also a major part in the evaluation. Well, why? Because it's another additional set of eyeballs and a very large set of eyeballs, all these college coaching staffs, that you can go and ask and you can say, hey, I thought about this. What do you what, what, what do you think about this guy? Do you like this guy? Why, why did you guys offer this guy over that guy? And maybe the coach says this and you go back and you look at the highlight tape and you look at the film and it says, okay, well, this coach is right about this. I actually didn't see this before and um, here are some other things that we need to look at, and maybe this kid's ranking goes up and the other kid's one goes down. Or maybe you go back and you don't see it and you say, hey, you know what? This coach actually offered this kid this and, and not this dude because he thinks he can sign this guy, and the other guy, he doesn't think he's got much of a shot to sign. you, you got to be able to pick through the noise, but, but these summer camps for the schools certainly are, are a major factor in evaluation as well because a lot of new offers uh, get set out, and that helps to, in my opinion, establish some – some upper and lower tiers and, and sort of the bounds for those tiers for some of these players. We also have the, like I said, the, the senior year of high school and, and then the all-star season. So right now, just as a general rule, um, and, and I'll talk about Florida State's class because it's the class that, that I, I know the best. Uh, but if you take a look, I would say that, that most of Florida State's commits are accurate to within, I don't know, 15% of their overall ranking. Like if you told me Demory Tate was a, a kid who was more like 175 in the nation instead of 133, or 75 in the nation instead of, instead of 133, that's fine either way. Maybe 20% higher low on these guys, but I, I think most of them have been evaluated uh, correctly and, and, and are, are looking fairly accurate. We'll have to see if it, which ones change, uh, but in the end, they they do seem to get a lot better because it just helps to to have seen more kids to be able to understand where to slot them to have that feel for it and to have more people see them. So when you go into those rankings meetings, everybody brings their own rankings, and they say, "Okay, who's our number one kid?" And everybody throws out their number one kid. Well, if there's a whole lot of consensus on it, then you move on to number two. If not, they're going to discuss it. They're going to pull up the film. They're going to look at it almost like like the playoff committee does, except amazingly less of a convoluted process in some ways. When is the exact time that I'd really start to trust the recruiting rankings? I, I think you can do it before their senior year. If you pull them up in late August, you're probably going to get a pretty good representation of what most of these kids are because there's a trickle-down effect. At that point, they're going to have gone to all the elite camps they're going to go to the school camps, and you're going to start to see, okay, we feel really good about these five stars for the most part. Maybe there's four or five we're still quibbling with. We're going to work it down. Then we're going to do the four stars. All right, these kids look pretty good. We're going to get down to the three stars. Oh, wait, this kid we has a three-star who's maybe the 400 or 500-rated player in the nation. He's actually probably in the 200, so he bumps up. Everybody else bumps down one. But there is the trickle-down. They want to make sure they get the five stars right first 
then the four stars, then the three stars. And so I would say probably end of August is when on in the overall, I would start to really think that they have the right rankings. And on an individual basis, it, it can vary a lot. Certainly there's going to be some kids who just, they may not get the right ranking ever, or they might take a, a long time. I know that was a very long and convoluted answer. No, it's, it's uh, a good answer, and it's an interesting idea of kind of the sliding scale as to when these things start to have more significance, and as more information becomes available, hopefully they become more uh, reflective of the of the actual prospect and what these uh, overall classes might be reflective of. Uh, another is it question fair to say, we, by the way, that like you are more likely to see greater variance in the ranking in your three stars? later than you will in your five stars because you get more heat if you misrank a kid who should be a five star a hundred percent another question we received was what would be the over under if the 2019 squad had the lines of 2005 through 2007 uh which is an interesting period of time to choose but i think more the takeaway of this is just just say it's a it's a dead average college offensive line i don't remember much from that team that stands out to me in, in terms of uh, offensive line process. Well, no, you, you still had like Marambu and some of those players. Uh, it was pretty talented. Or no, I think he was more 2004. Sorry. It, was, it was pretty poorly coached. They did have probably better individual talent on those teams. I think you had Alex Barron, right? Yeah, Barron was what, the number eighth overall pick, kid out of Orangeburg, South Carolina, that ended up, I think the Rams took him with one of the top seven or eight picks in the draft. Yeah, nobody on this on this line is going in the first round, <laughs> much less the eighth overall pick. Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. So yeah, let's say we have an above average line with one uh, kind of bell cow, and how that changes your ideas to what this year's over under might look like. I would say so. If your current over under is seven and a half, I think it's I probably do bump it up a full win. If if you told me that they're if they're going to have an above average offensive line. I think, I think I'm going to bump a full win and go to eight and a half. It's the major question facing this team to me. It would certainly give uh, a different level of, of confidence. And just, I mean, this is a common error that people make, but I would be I would be fairly tempted to almost say a full win if you just give me Barrett. Just give me, give me one guy outside that I know is going to win his battle you know, 85% of the time, uh, or just a competent offensive tackle, much less two. I don't know. It's hard to say exactly for sure. And I don't know that we've done the best job of, uh, of answering this question or contextualizing it, but, uh, it's a, it's a decent idea as to what might be different with maybe an offensive line that doesn't feature, uh, two of the worst offensive players in, in all of college football. I don't know if I can go a full win for one guy, but your point is well taken. I mean, their their tackles are so bad uh, that uh, I mean, gosh, getting a player of that caliber would, would represent an enormous enormous upgrade in the win column. Mario Henderson was on that team, another yeah. kid that played for the Raiders for a long period of time. Uh, I saw Mario yeah. a couple months ago. He's actually in high school coaching right now at uh, Dunbar down in Fort Myers. He played for uh, for Lehigh. Yeah, de- decent offensive line that those. Uh, those teams were still able to able to throw out there, um, especially when you consider how bad the coaching was. All right, yeah, yeah, I mean, that it was, was a, really bad. The other the other coach, uh, Mark McHale, yeah, 
Mikhail. And uh, when when did when did Jimmy Haggins leave? Oh Lord, uh, Trickett was such an upgrade from those guys. Legitimately, I know he had his faults, and certain guys would not come play for him. So the pool of guys they could recruit was limited. But good Lord, yeah, night and day, night and day. First, uh, this individual would like to say that he really enjoys the show. I appreciate that. Uh, living out in San Diego, don't run into a lot of Florida State fans. Uh, he states that hopefully Jay Williams can exceed expectations and represent uh, San Diego well. Uh, anyway, Hope in one hand and uh, you know what in the other. <laughs> can I say that out of here? Uh, my question involves running back recruiting, primarily who their top target is. Listening to the podcast last couple of weeks, uh, it sounds like it may be Jalen uh, Knighton uh, is the top running back prospect opposed uh, to Lawrence Philly, who is actually ranked higher uh, than him in the top 247. Why is this, and is Knighton actually the, the better prospect or uh, just the top target based more on uh, fit and offensive style? Sure. So uh, I, I think Knighton is a better player than uh, than Toa Philly by a little bit, not by a, a ton. They're, they're all pretty good players. This is a a good class of running backs. Florida State is very fortunate that it, it was able to get Treshawn Ward last year as a walk-on. We, we talked about that at the time, I, I think, right? Or was that just you and I on the phone? The, the, the walk-on they got last year out of, out of Tampa Bay Tech? No, we discussed. Kind of a uh, we discussed. And I, in fact, I think you made a point of devoting a little bit of time to that on two different signing day uh, recaps as to how it's nice to not have to devote a scholarship and also be able to uh, have a little bit more to throw at this year's class. Okay, awesome. Good. So, uh, Knighton, to me, is more compact. Uh, he's a little bit, little bit more physically developed. Uh, Lawrence, I... I think it's taller. Just I don't have their stuff pulled up, but just from having eyeballed them both in person, I, I think Knighton is more explosive. They both have the have the ability to catch the ball out of the backfield, so that is probably a bit of a wash. But I I do prefer Knighton. I also think he faces a a higher level of competition, and uh, and if they could get Knighton, I think that would make sense as their top running back uh, target. They also have uh, Kaziah Holmes who is a kid I've spoken about highly out of Coco, a kid who a lot of people thought was probably more of a corner. And based on our highlight tapes, I kind of did too, but he showed some really impressive one-on-one making miss ability at the opening camp in Orlando, and that did change my mind about him as a prospect. I, I was like, okay, well, hey, this guy maybe can really uh, can really, can really do it. Um, but, yeah, L- Lawrence, I guess, is ranked higher, right? Are they, are they really ranked that much further apart? Like, I, I have a hard time imagining that one is, is, you know, hundreds of spots higher or something. I'm, I'm about to pull this up right now. We also got this question, I think, about a week ago. So, there's, there's a chance this stuff has changed. So, Knighton is ranked 15th in the state. Lawrence is ranked 27th. Yeah, I, I'm just not. I'm not seeing. They're, I mean, they're both rated as as like top 160, top 150 type level kids, but Knighton on on the composite is is rated higher. Now, two four seven has it switched. Two four seven, if you don't use their composite, they have it at 28th for Knighton in the state and Lawrence at 13th in the state. Look, they're they're both good backs. Where do they have Holmes ranked? It's always interesting to me to, go, to kind of go state by state because I oftentimes view states at once. You know. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of crazy. They have this here. There's actually one kid I want to get out and see more of, uh, Ethan Pouncey at Winter Park. 247 loves this kid. He's rated 12th in their own personal rankings in the state of Florida. 36th in the composite, so a big-time difference there. And there's certain kids here I'm, I'm not going to dog them out, but they 
I'm, I'm pretty sure they're in for a bit of a a rankings drop as as other prospects get evaluated and, and we'll pass them up some. So we'll just have to see uh, what goes on with that. I still think it's pretty crazy that uh, Keyshawn Green is rated 35th in the state. There is no, there's just no way uh, that is not that's not an accurate ranking. He's an elite level player who has the frame to put on more weight, very athletic, exactly what you want in a linebacker. And, uh, yeah, he should not be where he is. Slight edit to my previous question, uh, just so anybody can save the uh, email. Alex Barron, indeed, out of Orangeburg, South Carolina, but the 18th overall pick, not the 8th overall pick. So I thought I'd go ahead and clear that up uh, for anybody that out there uh, would have otherwise let us know. Here's one for you. Alex Barron, and somebody can track this, over under 100 picks between where Alex Barron went and where anybody on Florida State's current roster offensive line-wise will go in the draft. So basically, will, will, will anybody on this current roster go, go, go better than 118th? At any, anybody at the roster at any point in their career? On the offensive line, not yeah, the right, right. I'm go, going to take the over, but uh, hopefully the man who makes uh, – Makes Madison Social change the name of their cheeseburger ends up proving uh, proving me wrong. That would be wonderful. Dante Lucas, let's uh, let's get some money. Let's get drafted early. Uh, he would probably be the the most likely candidate out of uh, out of that that I immediately see on the roster. I I totally think so. So, uh, not necessarily the the smoothest podcast that we've recorded, but uh, wanted to get one out uh, for you here as we end the week. Uh, appreciate the feedback. We're still working on a uh, follow-up to the, the booster episode in particular. Uh, want to continue to try to get uh, as many different points of view. Uh, to be honest with you, I think that podcast went well. I also think that podcast went well based off the feedback we've received. We ruffled some feathers on one side, and other sides thought that we went way too easy. So, uh, in, in general, that's probably a good sign uh but we will uh, continue to try to uh get as much information and present as fair of a picture as possible and to all the people that emailed us or reached out uh with their own particular points of view or uh ideas that things could be made better uh, bud and i both very much appreciate that have taken as much into that account and uh we'll probably try to sample uh, as much of that information that's been provided uh, here in the podcast here on a podcast in the next uh, maybe two to three weeks when we revisit the uh, the issue in general looking forward to it buddy five stars on iTunes and uh, we will talk to you soon thank you as always for the support that uh, we receive and any kind of support that you feel comfortable giving our sponsors till next time